Hey, it's Greg. This is the Square Pizza Pod, cooked up by Shermco. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Square Pizza Pod. In today's episode, Greg is in conversation with Jason B. Allen, who is the owner of Educational Entities. What you'll learn in this episode is his impressive teaching career, his work with profound gentlemen, elevating the work of men in education in the state of Georgia, leading the state of Georgia's first charter commission school for girls, and the work he leads at educational entities. There's a lot of powerful wisdom in this episode, and as always, hope you guys enjoy this one. I don't know if you're a sports guy, but I just saw that um, James Harden got traded from the Nets to Philly. I know that Philly is excited. I do keep up. I have some good friends in Philly, but the Hawks... That's that's actually my students and I. We love. We we would say that's the home team. We definitely stand with it. Now we love everyone. Sure, I'd imagine from Atlanta, you got to be the Hawks um, are. You know, they're our hope, <laughs> and the basketball <laughs> games are really really fun. So, oh yeah, it'd be good. Um, that's why I mean, it's been fun when the Hornets are winning. They I think are last night were on a six game losing streak, but better this year than what they have been in the past. So to your point, try to try to support anytime they can win to show show some love to them as well we um, love our braves too so i'm a braves fan atlanta braves big year for the yes. braves yes a major big year. year for the braves um i just dropped that link in the chat you can see that but yeah feel free okay. to use that um yeah little known fact and then we'll get into it i i'm actually i grew up in ohio but i'm a braves fan because tbs was one of the channels we got growing up and we actually got more Braves games than like the Tigers or the Indians or um, the Red Sox in Cincinnati. So it was easier to root for the Braves. Plus they were way better, if I'm going to be honest. So it was easy to jump on that bandwagon as like an eight-year-old than to like the Tigers or somebody else that was terrible. Um, so I was quite pleased this year when they they brought home the championship. Awesome. Um, Jason B. Allen, thanks, uh, thanks for joining the Square Pizza Pod, man. Well, thank you for having me. Good afternoon. This is awesome. I'm excited. Yeah, like I said, we've been a big fan of, of your work for a while, both like just seeing it. I know you've been on the A Black Hands, that podcast as well. And so really respect those guys and big fans of that work too and got to check you out there. Um, I think we'll get into some of the overlaps we have, but but definitely excited. Um, you're coming to us uh, from Atlanta today. Is that right? Yes, from Atlanta, the ATL, which is home for me. That's great. Uh, how are things going in Atlanta? Probably probably crazy, just like any other major city or rural city in the country, in the world right now. You know, it just depends. One of the things I teach my students is that even if chaos is happening in the world, you have to mm-hmm. be able to maintain your peace. So, you know, Atlanta is peaceful for me. Now, for some people, okay. it could be chaotic, um, but there are a lot of things that are happening in Atlanta that I think are resonating throughout the nation. And it's the concern for housing affordability. It's the concern of equitable pay for those valued first, you know, firsthand on the field, you know, first responders, um, all of those staff persons who need those salaries to make sure that they're safe and providing for us as, you know, what my pastor would say, we're going into the endemic, hopefully it's, you know, coming to some sort of end where there can be some normalcy, but, you know, there are I a lot of people know something getting, we don't. 
I know. <laughs> I hope so too, I hope right? Um, but there are still a lot of parents that are getting sick. And so that aspect of Atlanta, I think that a lot of people still can connect with um, and really give some type of empathy to. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's real. Um, I'm going to push you a little bit. Is it true you still feel peaceful in Atlanta traffic? You know, Traffic for me is not bad because okay. I am right, in close proximity to everything that I need to get to. My parents live close to me. My sisters uh, and their families are within 10, 15 minutes driving. My school is not far away. So it's not it's not bad for me. And I'm an Atlanta native, so I know how to navigate the no, back streets very well. Yep. So um, traffic can be a thing, um, but I just put on my music and I keep it pushing. Good for you. I like to hear that. And not only are you coming to Atlanta, but I believe you're coming from your classroom inside of a school and definitely want to get to that. But as I was reflecting on, you know, all of our wonderful guests we've had, we've had many um, uh, guests that have formerly been educators or teachers, but I think you are the actual first one that's still currently a teacher, which is probably an oversight on my end as those that invite the guests. Um, but would love for you to kind of riff off that and tell people um, kind of what it's like being in Jason B. Allen's classroom. I am definitely still teaching. And my school actually shout out to Seven Pillars Career Academy. We have a virtual program. We have a in-person program. And then we have an AB schedule where we have students who are you know, online working and they are also in the classroom on Sundays. And so we have a very good model that I think a lot of people would really get into if more of our public school systems were offering this type of flexibility. And so that's one of the things that I would definitely put um, some talking points to is that flexibility, it really is needed in this time. And so, um, it's a good experience. I'm loving it. This is going into year 18 for me. Can you talk more about that flexibility? Yeah. You know, school choice gives us flexibility to be able to change models. For example, when I was a district administrator in Atlanta Public Schools, it was the constant fight of policy. And this is what the system requires us to do. And it was a lot of red tape. That at the end of the day, by the time it funneled down to the schools, it was so watered down, the resources were so drained, it wasn't really impacting student achievement. Uh, with charter schools, you still have to follow, of course, federal guidelines. Now, I, I want to make this point clear that when you open a charter school or a magnet school or a monastery school, that doesn't mean that you just do whatever you want to do and there's no rules, there's no regulations. That is Absolutely not true. The difference is you don't have to be confined to such things as a district calendar. You're able to be mm -hmm. flexible. You're also able to be flexible in the curriculum that you are presenting. And when I say curriculum, we have an online curriculum so students can still work online, but they can also get the lessons that we provide for them in person. We also do a lot of field studies. So we have partnerships where we are actually, you know, for example, with the Kia plant, we're actually working with them and the students are able to go and visit and see what this looks like. And okay, I wanna go into engineering or I wanna go into design and really design 
cars because this is really cool work. I love cars and I love drawing. And so for someone who's a special education teacher like myself, that's an amazing opportunity for students, let's say for example, who are autistic and they love drawing, but they have an affinity with cars. And so now they see a career pathway where they can draw through design and they're actually designing something, cars that they love. So that's an example of what is possible through that flexibility and how it can serve all children, regardless of how they learn very well. I appreciate that nuance because you're right. Sometimes in this work, some people will say charter school, magnet school, and think one thing and kind of cover it in one blanket without knowing kind of the different shades of that blanket, if you will. Um, we're also just the nuances of that and that just opening a charter doesn't automatically mean it's going to be good. It's going to be better than anything else. It just means it's another opportunity, I think, sure. in our opinion, but also in yours as well to enhance and use a flexible model um, to best serve the kids and family they're trying to serve. And I don't think you're going to fight me on this, but you can if you want. But I, I think you'd likely agree that if it's good for your kids in your community, there's some common overlap that could be good for other kids in other communities if that model, that flexibility could be applied to maybe more bureaucratic school districts. I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, sharing is caring. I mean, I have to go back to the elementary school level and what we actually teach children. And we mm -hmm. teach our children to share, to share resources, to share their ideas, to share their thoughts. And so it's amazing to me, it takes me back to a conversation that I actually have had with my students. Why do we teach them things as children and then do something else as adults? And mm -hmm. we as adults have to think back to when we were children and teenagers and we asked our parents, you know, the same thing. And then our parents saying, well, you know what? I asked big mama and grandma and grandfather and papa, I asked them the same thing. And so when do we stop that cycle of, you know, we teach kids to do one thing, but then we model for them something different. And speaking of being a model, um, you know, 17, 18 years in the classroom, but also as um, a special education teacher, which isn't easy um, in, in any regards, right? Um, so we'd love to just hear kind of what's kept you in the classroom, you know, 17, 18 years. And also love when you and I were talking before this, you said you want to talk about teacher instruction, which is super micro, super specific, but I think only something that a true educator could really love. And that certainly jumped out. So we'd love to hear kind of as you're thinking about instructional practices, um, you know, why that smile is coming to your face even now. So I come from a family of educators. My okay. great-grandfather on my paternal, my father's side, he actually died teaching. He was 94 mm. years old. Um, wow. I come from, on both sides, those who have been strong educational, instructional leaders. And so within my 18 years, eight of those years, Really, yeah, seven of those years I spent in administration on the school level okay. and also on the district level. Yep. And of course, the rest of the years I have been in the classroom. I have taught everything from the smile came from thinking back to the different levels in education that I've been in. I've taught everything mm -hmm. from fifth grade to 11th grade. So elementary, wow. middle and high school. I would definitely have to say that my favorite area is middle school. And middle school is my smile, right? Yeah. Um, I'm working with my students right now. Our student group is called 
uh, Students for Equity. It's formerly known as the Atlanta Student Coalition. So some okay. people in North Carolina or you know across the Southern region may remember my students' voices from different podcasts that they've spoken on and different events. So I'm sharing that to say that my students, you know, I let them interview me because I'm always teaching them different things. And I love the part around interview styles. And so this is getting into the teaching practices because I'm actually, mm-hmm. you know, giving some examples of what I'm actually doing that's working with my students. Um, so yeah. twofold, our student group allows me to continue my work outside of the classroom with my students. And then I'm able to bring it back into the classroom as, you know, this is what I did with students. And now I have living, breathing examples that I don't even have to give. I can pass the microphone or pass the talking stick to, you know, one, two, three of my students that are actually a part of the student group. And so that's a strategy that I share with teachers. A lot of times everything does not have to be done because of the red tape and because of the structure and culture of our school, because of the leadership that it doesn't have to be done right in the classroom. And I think the pandemic allowed for some of this to really happen in a more advanced way. Um, Another thing that I've done is I've showed my students my hobbies. Um, The Educator's Voice, which is a part of the step and repeat behind me, is my monthly blog where Mm -hmm. I invite people into the classroom. And those stories are informed by, they're inspired by the conversations, the assignments, the dialogues, the projects that my students and I are engaging in the classroom with. And so I take the ideas and the things that they think are the most important. And I'm like, I'm going to share this with the world because I want adults to get an idea of conversations that are being held with teachers. And parents are so shocked because they're like, I know this isn't my child that would be you know, giving this as an example, but you wouldn't be shocked because a lot of the students are saying that they don't get an opportunity to talk at home or in the car, in the community with adults or siblings or family members like they do their teacher. And so that's a strategy. And I'm, I'm excited about sharing this because everyone in the country knows that we are in a severe teacher crisis we can't get substitutes. Like there's a two month waiting list in schools that are literally around the corner from where my school is. Is that right? right? To get a substitute. So there is a lot that's happening that is steering people away from education. So I want to shed as much light, as much joy to this work as possible. So there are some amazing things that are happening, um, being able to connect those things to what students want is the key to keeping students engaged, to making teachers feel valued and important. And so I could keep going with some more examples, but I, I, I want to also respect the time and, and no, the no, question. No, but yeah, that's, that's my smile. That's the excitement. Yeah, that's yeah. what I would say in, re- in regards to that. No, I appreciate that. I don't want to stop you, especially when you have so much joy in the information you're you're delivering. And I got to imagine, right, a few things that it's endearing to students and our babies to see uh, an adult in the classroom, a teacher share just their hobbies and, you know, to build that personal connection, but also likely opens them up to things that they didn't know could be hobbies of interest that they can get into to your point, you know, if they can understand it and explore at a middle school uh, level. 
they can, they can taste it. They can try it. They can see if they like it. And if they do, they can move forward. And if not, they can scrap it and try something else. Right. And that's probably larger than any of the curriculum that's mandated that by, by so many States across the country. It is good for you. That's great. And I know we have, um, I think a common connection and maybe um, support for a, a group that many know as Profound Gentlemen. Um, and, you know, we've been fortunate to work with them and do a number of projects and just help advance their work. But I think you um, have many intersections and connections with them as well. So I'd love for you to share with our community um, just how you got engaged with PG and kind of what you and PG have or are currently doing together. Awesome. So I have been a longtime advocate for um, Black male engagement. Um, I started with my best friend and my college professor, um, a mentoring group for Black males at my college that is still Mm -hmm. going at around four universities uh, now, Mm -hmm. as well as schools, because as we've graduated and, you know, some of the members have continued on um, and started mentoring programs in their neighborhood schools. And that is how I got connected to Profound Gentlemen. Um, I was Mm -hmm. at a conference uh, hosted by Sharif El Mekki out of Philly. And um, the man. I was, yes, he's awesome. I was connected to one of the founders, uh, Jason Terrell, who is mm-hmm. back here in Atlanta. And that's how was I that, was a, that was a bad, that was a bad loss for Charlotte. That was a bad loss for Charlotte, but he's. It, it was, it was a great, it was a great regain for us, <laughs> but I will agree that, you know, his, his presence in the organization is definitely missed, um, but he has been an invaluable resource. Um, when That's we right. connected, he really helped move the needle here in regards to how we're supporting male educators of color and mm-hmm. really elevating conversations across the aisle, you know, politically across, you know, various regions in our state around how can we really support men in education? Because Georgia, as well as many of the states in the South, many of our public educational systems have been heavily populated with women Mm -hmm. and still are. And so building that value of, building that value of education for male educators is something that Jason has definitely helped to elevate here um, in the state of Georgia with myself. So I'm a community builder for the organization, specifically for Georgia. Um, We have a cohort and we have some leaders and members in Chicago as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. But Georgia and Chicago are two areas where Profound Gentlemen has said we definitely want to grow in these areas because of the severe challenges in equity within education. And so that's why that work has started to become more elevated. And so um, I am definitely excited to continue working with PG. I actually have on a sweatshirt uh, by PG. My computer, I guess, is like a little bit off-centered, so it's not showing all of it. Um, But I'm always (laughs) representing PG. I'm actually looking at my PG book bag and, um, you know, just still doing that work. Uh, to elevate the mission. And so we had two major events. Um, We Mm -hmm. had a a male educator day at the Capitol where we were, you know, acknowledged by Senator Jackson here in the state of Georgia. And we were able to elevate conversations around how we can support more male educators of color here in the state of Georgia. And I also was able to host a virtual panel 
with teachers, male educators mm. of color, um, teachers in the classroom to speak about what's really happening, what can people do, what do people need to know? How can you really support the need for reimagining education? And so Profound Gentlemen was our top partner with those endeavors and the work is continuing to grow, especially here in Georgia. So I'm excited about what's next for us. That's great. I think you might um, be rocking the PG shirt with their upcoming conference in March. Um, yes. That they always do as well. So we're going to be there in some form or fashion at some point to support them too. You know, I love obviously all that work. I love the, the recent example uh, you just gave around speaking and elevating current teachers, right? Because so much time in this work, we see politicians, superintendents, others telling, I think, people what they need and should do, but we often forget those that we're trying to serve. So I love that focus of elevating their work as well. And curious of like either, you know, what, what Jason specifically has helped you with, what those teacher elevated or what you've seen as a male educator of color in your classroom around the importance of retaining male educators and what are maybe one, two, three specific things our school leaders, our superintendents listening should be considering in order to make schools a safe, uh, a safe space for black male educators. Awesome. So first thing I would definitely say is Everyone, please go to profoundgentleman.org. Check out our PG stories. Um, I have the opportunity to keep those stories up to date and provide a lot of strategies and ways that school leaders, administrators, district leaders, alumni, um, other stakeholders can really do the things that you just asked. So I definitely want to make sure that I give that resource. One of the things that I definitely will say to your question is that everyone can do this. And it starts by simply giving grace, understanding that we are going through a very interesting time. And it's not just politically, uh, but within our social climate, navigating through the pandemic, which has caused so many other challenges for everyone. And it's, it's hitting everyone different, differently, but we're all experiencing it. So giving each other grace is something that my school leader wakes us up with every day, not just the staff members, but also the students. Students, give your teachers grace. You know, they're trying to put together the best lesson as possible. You know, don't just be nice. If it's trash, come up with a nice way to say that it was a trash <laughs> lesson. The kid did do something different. We'll try it again tomorrow. That's but right. Give yeah. them, give them some grace. You know, give them that constructive feedback, but give them the grace to acknowledge that they spend a lot of time trying to put together something special for you, I'm sharing this because this lesson is important for parents. We need parents to model that and do the same thing. We need neighbors to model that and do that with each other because let's be honest, domestic violence, violence within our communities have increased, specifically domestic violence. What's happening between mom and dad or whatever the family dynamics may be, children are experiencing this and so those are examples of what I would say would help to retain teachers, but also I would say something that Jason, as well as our leadership within PG has continued to elevate, and that's the need for economic advancement in the field of education and paying teachers and educators their true worth. Because if we're doing the work of, clearly we know that the work is essential, because everyone in the nation was in a uproar. I mean, if it, if it was down to the president having to decide, we may have a new president because people were that adamant about children need to be in school. 
And that goes to show that if, if schools are this important as hospitals, as grocery stores, then grocery store workers, I'm gonna add you guys into this too, then we all should be paid what the demand is speaking to. Not we're demanding you to do all of these things and then you're having to also work two or three other jobs because that's the story of a lot of teachers, including myself, like, and there's no, no slight to my school. Uh, my situation is very special within itself, but I am, I understand what teachers are going through when you're working full time and having to also work two or three other jobs. And so that economic empowerment, that is something that's important. And I'll also say this, we do a lot of work with PG in regards to community building around policy development. Um, you know, I know we'll get into this maybe a little bit later, but I recently ran for school board and that really inspired a lot of teachers, especially a lot of male educators of color, those who are history teachers, especially to say, wow, I want to be engaged. I really want to stay connected to this work because we have an opportunity to really help change how we actually do education, how we do schools. And so I think that that's a way for school administrators, school leaders to help retain teachers by partnering with organizations such as Profound Gentlemen or the Center for um, Black Educators under Sharif el Mekki and others across the nation that have great quality programming that can support teachers, can support district leaders in actually retaining a good sound work base because we all know consistency is a major part in education too. Keeping your good teachers, keeping your teachers who need development in place so they can continue to grow and provide quality educational experiences for all children. And Jason, going back to teaching instruction almost a little bit from something you just said and connecting the dots, is it fair to assume or ask you if it's more challenging to be an effective teacher virtually than what it is in a traditional in-person world pre-COVID? Oh my God, I'm glad that you asked that. Both have pros and cons. I love both. Um, okay. I'm very hands-on and engaging. So I like to be able to go in person to my classroom. I can set it up. I can be in stations. I can be in small groups. Uh, if I want to reenact you know, a scene from a movie and I need to stand on top of the desk to really be dramatic and you know, get my students engaged, I had a flexibility to do all of that. But also virtually online, I'm able to be a DJ. I'm able to be DJ <laughs> Allen and incorporate music, as I mentioned, you know, a little bit before we started, you know, being yep. able to do music trivias and really being able to have my students do presentations and incorporate different types. Yesterday, we were listening to country music. And I know people are like, country music? But my students loved it. They were so engaged because I was intentional about presenting something to them in a different way. And so virtually students can learn. And we were a radio, this week we're doing a radio show. But last month we were doing a TV show. Mm -hmm. Next month we'll be doing a totally different thing. So you can make things as engaging as possible virtually, just like you can in person. And I think that my experience or the experience of our school is different because we actually had a student that passed away in the pandemic. And so that charged us to think differently, which is why we have different options. And we understand that there are children that have severe and underlying health conditions. And so what is the best 
spaces for them to also learn in where they can be protected and not be in harm's way or those children who have grandparents that are raising them. A lot of people don't think about these different, you know, subgroups and families because we're focused solely on what is going to benefit us the most and how is it going to impact our household. But as a teacher, I have to be mindful of all of my students and how they are coming to me and what their households represent. And so that is something that I would say school leaders, uh, school board members, as they're making policies and implementing policies, um, this is what they can consider are all of the families that we serve. And I know speaking to what you offered up earlier, Jason, around teacher pay, which is usually oftentimes a policy decision, um, as well as maybe just the models of education that many communities kind of have, like the options, the lack of options. Again, often a policy decision, either at the school board level or the state level. And it sounds like you have um, thrown your hat in the ring and said, really want to put your name um, out there to really be this change and um, really have the opportunity to affect policy up at a, a positive level. Um, so can you speak about running for school board in Atlanta, what you're hoping to accomplish there? Yeah, I last year I ran for school board in the city of Atlanta, and I feel like it was an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to really engage uh, with stakeholders, not just simply as a teacher or an alumni or as a community leader, but as someone who is going into or aspiring to go into a policy realm to influence, review, impact policy development um, and the implementation process. And one of the things that was a benefit for me is that I actually have done the work. I led the state of Georgia's first uh, charter commission school for girls, uh, which was very interesting as a member of Profound Gentleman and also an educational leader being the board chair of an all girls school. And so that experience taught me a lot. Um, It taught me the need of having a strong policy review and development calendar. So that Mm -hmm. let me know that when I'm running for school board, these are things that I need to be looking into. I did a lot of work the year before um, even becoming interested in running for school board the year before the pandemic, actually, my students and I were doing projects around policy development. If we have these issues in our school system, what do we do to get it fixed? And so we went to where does the work begin? With the board, with policy Mm -hmm. development, with budget review. How are we making sure that we're budgeting for each operational aspect of education? And so The interesting thing is a lot of people get tuned out about that. We just want to elect someone we feel like looks good, is going to represent us and do what we say. And a lot of the engagement ends there. And so my running for school board was really to help inform the community to re-engage voter bases that may have only voted because someone told them just vote for this person because we like their name instead of really doing what I teach my students, which is researching your candidate. And so I was able to reach a lot of people in the city of Atlanta who had never voted for, you know, school board. They were not engaged in the school board election at all. People who had voted but had not voted in the school board election the last three times because they were just so disengaged. And so a big part of me running was re-engaging the community, having my students involved and being out there 
hitting the pavement with me and talking to stakeholders about this is my teacher and this is what he's actually teaching us about policy development. And this is why we need someone like him in office to really help us change the economic inequalities that school systems face. A lot of people don't realize, and this is something that everyone should look up. When you're looking at, let's say, the pay wages within your county, go to your school district first, and you will be surprised to see that at least, depending on where you are in your state or what county you sit in, at least 15 to 20% of those employed in the public school system in your county are the working poor. They are the working poor. That means that they're, they're making a wage, but it's not a livable wage. So that goes back to how I was saying teachers, and I hope mm-hmm. everyone's following me, teachers, yes, we're making a wage, but it's not something that can sustain our lifestyles. And we're not driving Bentleys. I mean, we're not barely driving Hondas. And if we are, <laughs> they're barely driving. They're so not I'm new ones. Being honest, like we're not driving Bentleys, everyone, please. You know, even if we have children, we don't have children, we're taking care of mom and dad, we're paying off student loans, whatever whatever the dynamic may be, it still requires a lot of educators to have more than one job. And so these were all issues that I ran on uh, to help us improve engagement. That is an issue that so many stakeholders had, whether they were parents, whether it was teachers, people would be shocked. Teachers have no clue what's politically happening in the school district. All they really know is that they feel the impacts. They feel the impact. If people really want to know if your school system is functioning well, look at your teachers. Teachers are the direct reflection of if your school system leaders, if your board members are really truly doing what they say they're doing, and then it's the students. So you can look at the student data and say, oh yeah, well, this is reflected in the teachers wanted to leave the district or wanted to go to a different school or wanted to get out of education altogether. And so these were issues that I not only elevated um, when I ran for school board, but also things that I advocated for. And I'm still continuing to reach out and work with board members on better ways that we can implement and develop policy to restructure what we're doing in our schools. I mean, all that is so important and, you know, it has to be an incredible inspiration to your students to see you standing up in the classroom, being a DJ one day, being a community builder the next day, and then being a school board um, candidate, right, as well the next day after that. And to see that leadership has to be incredible and inspirational uh, amongst many other things, has to be um, inspirational to other Black male educators in Atlanta and across the country, knowing that they're likely frustrated in their classrooms for the lack of equity that, that they're experiencing and seeing you running in the community and to change those policies are, has to be motivational to them as well to see that access that they can do it. And that representation there is so important. But I think maybe to what I really wanna go deeper on and you know, maybe just a little bit here is, um, you know, one, the lack of voter turnout we often see in many school board races across the country but also then like the disconnect between the people we are maybe not voting for and who gets in those seats are often in, in, in cities and communities like Charlotte and Atlanta managing two, three, four billion dollar budgets and affecting people, you know, 100,000 employees and 200,000 kids. And so we think about how critical that vote is and the people that sit in those seats managing budgets with a B at the beginning of those budgets. 
um, and all the students and the teachers those affect, those are massively critical decisions and the people we elect um, to pit in those seats, uh, to your point, I think we have to really consider the resources and the research to make sure we're making the right decisions at the voting booth. That's right. I would definitely say voter engagement is, okay, I'm gonna break it down just how I do in the classroom. I love this piece Please. as well. Please. One of the things, and we highlighted this in the work that my students and I did over really the last three years, uh, specifically the last year and a half, changing what does this voter engagement even look like? We see a lot of the campaigns and we see, you know, celebrities that are getting, you know, involved and let's get out to vote and we need you to vote. And, you know, we see Democrat, we see Republican, you know, okay, we see their thoughts, we see their beliefs. But what is happening to the actual piece of voter education? And that is what's missing. People are not informed. They're not engaged. They're not taking that time to really, and here's a good example. One of my students said, as we are out canvassing, Mr. Allen, why don't we see any signs for the people who are running for judge? And I said, that is a good question. Let's dialogue and talk about that. Because people are not voting on, when, when you go look at, you don't know what they look like. You don't really see a lot of them campaign with their faces because most people, if you recognize the judge, you see it was like, oh, we were in court and that's who sent my father away or that's who you know made our neighbors have to lose their house and they didn't even do anything wrong or whatever the outcomes may be. If you see the person's face, it makes a huge difference, but also, seeing and knowing that it challenges you to look at their track record. Judges don't want you to look up their track record because then you're not going to vote. So there's an art to this as well. There's a political science to this and being able to know the ins and outs. You don't normally see that. And then also, you know, they learned a lot about even how people do their signs and, you know, making sure that you're attracting a a certain, excuse me, uh, voter base you know, connecting your audience. So they learned a lot around how the public speak, but also how to present your message. Everyone has a special interest. Is that a bad thing? How do you really work across the aisle? And if your candidate does not get in, are you able to work with the person that's elected to get done what needs to happen in your community? And so this is even how this connects to Profound Gentlemen, that community building work. How are we building communities. And I, I'll, I'll say this proudly, you know, I serve Black students, I serve mixed race students, I serve white students. I have white students that were actually on the campaign trail with us and it was the dialogue that students are able to have. Well, you know, I hear my parents talk like this, but some of my friends that like the qualities that they say you need someone who's trustworthy, who's honest, like they may be people who don't look like me or worship like me or, you know, Mm -hmm. like the same things like me and that should be okay. And we learned that together um, on the trail. How do we work with people who say, I voted for Donald Trump? Okay, Mm -hmm. well, you exercise your right to vote. What do you want to see done in your community even if you live on this corner and I live on the other? If you voted for Trump or you voted for, you know, Donald Duck, it doesn't matter. You know, we have to be able to come together and work together at the end of the day. And in Georgia specifically, we have seen elected officials not do this well. 
And so it was empowering to see my students be engaged in this process, not just to learn, but to see that we can't just simply say voter registration and let's register you to vote and then go to the polls and vote. We also have to engage and educate. And those were two areas that we saw a lot of people weren't simply doing that. They weren't really educating constituents and they weren't truly engaging them in the process around voting. Jason, you have so much incredible work happening in, in education and community building. What's one thing, maybe two things, we'll give you two things, two things our listening audience can do to, to support all the great work you're doing. Well, one thing they could do is go to um, educational entities that's on the step and repeat behind me. Mm -hmm. And it is my company where I run the student group, um, Lily's Foundation. I have the JBA podcast, which is a series of podcasts uh, for myself and other teachers to elevate um, the educator's voice. It's also how you can connect to the blog. So it's educationalentities.org. And the second thing that I would say that people can do to support my work is to find your community school, whether it's a monastery school, if it's the elementary school right up the street, you don't have to have children there. You don't, your kids don't have to go to that school, but it's your local community school and partner with them. Ask them, what is it that you need? What resources are you missing? There are so many things that you can do because that way you can come in and say, hey, I'm an electrician and you're lacking this type of program. Well, my company actually does this. And let me see if I can connect you to our community outreach person. We actually want to connect with schools or they need storytellers or they want someone to come in and actually talk about collecting cars or movies or you know, get your seniors involved and they can share their baseball. It's so many ways. I'm throwing out so many examples because it's endless possibilities of ways that you could connect and support. So that would be the second thing that I would ask people to do in order to support me is to do that. Supporting me means you're supporting your school and you're supporting educators that are supporting those in the very community that you live in, that you pay taxes to, that you go to the grocery store in or shop in or whatever it may be. So that would be my second thing. Script. And I know, Jason, you're obviously a smart dude, so you're well aware that yesterday was National Pizza Day, February 9th, 2022. Um, yes. So, of course, I have to ask, what does what does Square Pizza remind you of, Jason? Let me tell you, I love National Pizza Day, and, and this is why, because the 9th is also my father's birthday. And is that right? It is, yes, my daddy's birthday is on the Two 9th. Two reasons to celebrate. We, Two reasons yes. to celebrate. We had a major pizza party for him for his 60th, which was last year. And it was only us because, you know, we were still navigating, you know, through this pandemic time. But yes, that's one reason why I love that. But a second reason is because my principal from high school, uh, Dr. Hill, who is definitely one of the most influential educators in my career, um, he just turned 80 on yesterday. And he was major, let me tell you, this is why I do pizza parties still to this day. He was major on pizza parties because of his birthday being on National Pizza Day. So, um, so crazy. So, so yeah, that was my little short story with why that why it's important and why I'm, I'm connected to it in that way. I, mean, I, I just heard you say good people and good food and good times. And if, if that's yeah. what 
if those are the memories that come from from pizza, then I think that's a um, that's a good place to start. Okay, I just have to say one more thing just about Pizza Day. People do not know this, but Pizza Hut actually still does um, their readathon, where if your students read a certain amount right? of books, yeah. yes, parents, educators, please get connected to that because let me tell you, it becomes. Uh, I'm a middle school teacher. Let me also remind everyone. So my students get excited about getting Amazon gift cards so they can buy comic books with and, you know, the coupons for I could get my own pizza and whatever right. that looks like. It still works. So, yeah, in honor of Pizza Day, go to Pizza Hut or your local, you know, pizzeria and, you know, do what needs to be done. I feel like maybe they're slacking on the social media marketing game because, uh, you know, I feel like you maybe I'm out of the loop, but we haven't heard about that as much as used to maybe when you and I were kids. A lot of people are, like, I don't know why, I don't know. And then I'm like, maybe people like me are like, if a lot of people aren't talking about it, maybe that'll give get my all students the extra. a chance to get more, I don't know. So, so yeah, <laughs> but I am going to put right. that out there. <laughs> Jason B. Allen, man, thanks so much for all you're doing. Thanks for joining the Square Pizza Pod. We'll definitely share this and get um, all those links out to our community to make sure they support you and all the great endeavors you're doing. Awesome. I really appreciate it. And they can go to allenforschoolboard.com and donate and support the work. It's going to be happening again, maybe very soon. So, yes. Hope so. Yeah, y'all go give Jason, give Jason some money. Um, it's going to be for the, the benefit of the kids in the community in Atlanta. Thanks so much, Jason. Yes, it will. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for checking out the Square Pizza Pod, making a few selfish requests. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about the podcast and share this with a friend. We appreciate it. Thanks.